Thanks for listening to another episode of The Giving Leader with Phil Ling. I'm Phil Ling, the founder of The Giving Church. It's our kickoff to season three of our podcast. Amazingly, and thankfully, we've had thousands of you download the episodes, and we're excited about season three. My first guest is Don Wilson. I've known Don for decades. Don was the founder of Christ Church of the Valley in the Phoenix area of Arizona, a church that grew to nearly 30,000 on a weekend. At one Easter, I think it was 58,000 at Cardinal Football Stadium. And now he's helping to coach and work with those folks coming behind him. So I'm excited about this next episode with Don Wilson. Uh, been doing this for a long time, worked with hundreds and hundreds of leaders across the country. And as we started going down through this whole COVID thing, you know, I, I reflected back. I've, I've worked with pastors during 9-11. I was in an airplane when 9-11, when the planes hit the towers and had to turn around and fly back to the West Coast and then drive home across the country because everything was grounded. So been through crazy times, but nothing like this, because we in our world, it's I said it's like restaurants, bars and churches. You know, those are the three that it smashed really, really hard and you can't gather together. And so how do you lead? So when I came up with this idea, Tim and I sitting around talking about it, I said, I want to lean on my friends and mentors of the past and bring them in just to talk to other leaders about leading through crisis and dealing with unforeseen circumstances. Uh, Don Wilson has been not only a friend, but a mentor of mine for over 30 years. Man, we're old. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I ran into Don when I was planting my first church. I was in central Kentucky, little town, and I flew out to Phoenix and went to Christ Church of the Valley's pastor conference that Don was putting on. At the time, they were in a storefront. They were running in the hundreds, not the thousands. Uh, he was this crazy guy that focused on reaching men for Christ first, on doing volleyball teams all over the place on Sunday nights and trying to see how many different bars their T-shirts could pop up in um, <laughs> as they built their teams to reach unchurched people. Later on, as he continued to lead Christ Church of the Valley, and if you know anything about the church, it's amazing. And even after his retirements continued to grow, a few years ago on Easter, they decided to take it to an NFL stadium and had about 58,000 people there. So he's been an innovator, a strong leader. If, if you know anything about Don, it's his leadership. And so when it comes to leadership, he's the guy that I've always stolen every idea from and picked his brain. And he was kind enough to jump on with our, our first group with Lead Together. So Dr. Don Wilson, thanks for coming. Hey, glad to be here. You know, when uh, I went from uh, Don Don Ho to Don Who, you know, once you retire. So, you know, it's <laughs> great, great to talk to you. And somebody cares, you know what I mean? Glad to be here. It's just me and Sue, your wife. That's it. That's right, it. That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. So here, here's the deal. I just want to throw you some, some questions and let you pontificate a little bit for the group. So everybody that you're looking at leads. And they're trying to figure out how to lead, depending on part of the country and what they're dealing with. And often, uh, some are, are being able to gather together. Some are still not gathering together. We have a client in the Philadelphia area that actually surveyed their church early on in this thing. And they had hundreds of families respond, which is weird in a survey that they even respond. And they said, like 75% of them said they would not come back to church until the vaccine was available. And most of them said not for a year after that. So it's a weird world that we're living in. So as you, from your chair now, looking at this thing, 
Uh, how do you see the, the changes going forward? How's church in North America going to look different for a time based upon our experiences of the last year? Great question. Um, and, and I think as I, as I work with pastors all over the country, Phil, what I've found is it's kind of different whether you're in a rural setting or an urban setting. I find that a lot of churches in the rural setting have really been having church for a long time. They're not facing uh, some of the shutdowns that the urban uh, churches are. But I think one of, the, one of the things that's coming back to haunt us is for a lot of us, the number one thing, you can call it the attractional model, whatever you want. For most of us, the thing that we really pushed in our church was worship and gathering. And now that we haven't been able to do that for a year, like we've always done it, we're having to step back and say, wait a minute, what are some other things of an Acts 2 church that we've missed? Evangelism, discipleship, community, um, all of those sorts of things. So I think the church is going to have to reevaluate going forward. What are the elements of church that were in Acts 2 that we've kind of put to the side and put a major emphasis on our weekend experience? I think that's one of the major things we're going to have to reevaluate. I, I agree completely. Here's, here's a question, and I realize this is just looking into the crystal ball and trying to guess, but how long do you think the average church in North America sees their numbers bounce back to pre-COVID numbers? I, um, the largest I've heard from anybody right now that, that is doing, it's about 65% or back. Yesterday, I was talking to a pastor in Virginia, and they're at 10%. Um, the, so as far as coming back, a lot of people are saying to me, there's going to be a great revival when this all is over. I don't think so. People are creature, creatures of habit. And once you can watch church in your pajamas for a year and not go back to church, I think the only way we're going to get people back in church is finding out giving jobs where they can serve because they don't have to come back to church anymore. They can give online. They can watch online. I think it's going to be a long time before we ever get back to pre-COVID uh, numbers myself. Would it, would it, if you were earlier on, so, you know, you're say 20 years ago at CCB where you guys are growing like crazy, maybe you're in the tent, you're trying to figure out facilities. How would you look at facilities different? Um, you know, a lot of people are saying it's going to be the micro church going forward, which is, I, I think, small groups on steroids. You can call it whatever you want. But, but I really believe the missing component, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, Phil, but I think the mi missing component is because people, we've pushed the weekend service so much, we really haven't trained our people how to share, know, know what they believe and how to share their faith. We pretty much said, you invite your friends to church and we'll, we'll lead them to Christ. And I think now when you can't come to church and people are out walking their dogs and talking and visiting more in the neighborhoods than they ever have, I think the missing piece going forward has got to be evangelism. Uh, do you know what you believe and how do you build relationships with your unchurched neighbors and take that opportunity to, to build faith with them? I think that's the missing piece. And, and I think right now, most of the sermons I'm hearing is overcoming fear, anxiety, all that. Well, you're going to keep having anxiety and fear as long as you always think about yourself. The way to get over anxiety and fear is focus on others, which has lost people. So I think evangelism is going to be the real key moving forward. So does that impact uh, even how you build your staff going forward? Absolutely, because what they're finding out in COVID is 
All they, all most churches have been able to do is a weekend experience on video and some kind of small group um, ministry. So all of a sudden, all these staff people they've had to do a lot of ministries that didn't reach lost people, but we started them to keep church transfers happy. Those haven't been, we haven't been using those for over a year. And so now they're saying, wait a minute, do we really need these going forward to build our church and impact your, our community? Okay, so this is where I wanted to get to because I don't hear anybody talking about this stuff because uh, I think you're right. Um, I think that we have built our churches for a model that may not look this way for a long, long time. And so then going forward, it's like, how do I use the, the term in business? How do I right size or how do I reimagine what it is that I actually need? So whether it's tech staff that I realize now I use a lot. Um, so if... If you're looking at that, because I think this is here's the the reality. Uh, the average church right now is down 26 percent in income year over year. I've got a church, one church in a major denomination that's very influential in their region, and their denomination already knows they're going to close 30 churches for good. One right in my backyard has been here for 119 years, just announced this week. They've turned everything back over to their denomination. They're. They're, they're out of business. So this, this, what first was, we can't get together. Then it's how do we keep enough money coming in to float us for a period of time? Now it's, oh, what are we going to look like going forward? And the ugly part of that, that we as church leaders, we're going to have to wrestle with is what's the staff makeup going to be? What is, who is it that I need and who is it that maybe I thought I needed, but I don't need them to the degree that I did? And I don't mean to put names with that. I'm just talking positions. So it, talk about that for a minute, because that's at, at, leading a church through rapid growth for 30 years like you did at CCV. You were constantly having to make tough calls. You're the one that taught me the phrase that I have used all over the country. And I charge for it, by the way, <laughs> is that whenever you're making a tough call, you risk the relationship. That was, that was you, risk the relationship. So as you look at that, if you're building for tomorrow, talk about this, the areas and positions that you would staff for and ones that you would say, you know what, don't know if I would do that again. Well, I think, you know, we've always said our, our goal is to reach men, but even though our goal is to reach men, because we live in an upward down culture today, when I grew up on a farm years ago, dad was in charge uh, and he would say, you can, you can go. I said, if I'd say, dad, I don't want to go to church. He said, you got two options. You can walk or ride. So uh, it didn't make a difference. How good, <laughs> it didn't make a difference how good my children's teacher was get in the car. Dad was in charge. Now we have child centered families. So even though I'm trying to reach men, I believe if you're going to get the adults to come back, you have to have a killer top rate children's program because parents that don't want to go to church will get up and bring their kids to church if their kids want to go because the kids the kids they'll do any anything for their kids so that the first thing i would look at is uh, definitely uh the children's program that, that that to me has got to be the top priority that see now that surprises me because uh, it was but what if only 30% are coming back on the property. Well, I think those are still af afraid, but I think as everybody, as more people get vaccinated, I think then that that's going to remove the fear of, uh, of a lot of people coming back. Now, if, if they don't come back, 
the only way you're going to get them then is through small groups. Because if pe- the struggle is, we know that before COVID, they were watching your these pastors, they were watching them online if they had an online ministry, but they're also watching Andy Stanley or Craig Groeschel or who knows who during the week. But I think when COVID hit, a lot of people almost every week have started watching other pastors instead of their own pastor. So I'm not sure they're going to change the allegiance back to their own pastor that much if they've been watching other communicators online. So how are we going to get allegiance? Again, I think it's a children's ministry, and I think it's through our key leaders developing relationships through small groups because uh, the Zoom calls are not taking care of the problem with uh, uh relationships. We've got to be face to face. So I have to go back and figure out uh, how do I reach my neighbors and and put a lot of emphasis on that. Uh, This is kind of a more of a mundane question. Um, In in light of because I I do think the one the soapbox I've been on is that the, the it made us all become adopters. Some were already early adopters, made us all become adopters of online ministry. And so now we don't just go see what Stephen Furtick's talking about, but we actually have been introduced to that. And like you say, can watch it in our pajamas. I don't think that goes away. I think that stays just like when you went into multiple services years ago, you know, and you just started realizing, oh, I can reach a whole lot more people if I have lots and lots of services. So, but I'm wondering if it affects, will we see churches that grow and have big rooms or will they have modest size rooms that they use lots and lots of times during the week because now we've been introduced to the idea, what if I had a 3,000 seat room for the last year, nobody in it? Is that smart? Or do I need a, a different look at how, how I even uh, build facilities? Oh, I think going forward, I don't know of anyone that's building a large facility. Um, I, mean, I mean, like they used to. For example, right. in our multi-sites, we found out we could run 5,000 on a weekend with a 750 seat auditorium. And so we do have, we had, we had some campuses running over 5,000 with only 750 seats. So uh, you say, well, what, how many services do you have? Well, we have six, we have four on Sunday and two on, on Saturday. But uh, so I, I think it's definitely going to be smaller, smaller venues that are used multiple times. That's that's, I think that for folks that are listening, because we're going to share a lot of this stuff on our podcast too. So we'll have literally thousands of leaders listening. And I think that's a big deal. Uh, going forward, but you're still saying so. Children still is a driver. It's it's going to look different, but it's still a driver. Is where we put staff dollars. Yeah, I, I think um, you know years ago I had a pastor on staff that had a heart transplant, and so when he was recovering, I said take a year off and visit every church within five miles of of, our, of CCV. Tell me what they're doing different, because I, I think the problem is people are saying, man, we need more churches. We don't need more churches in America. We need better churches in America. We need different churches. So that. That year, when he spent visiting church, every church all around us in five miles, he came back and had two assumptions or two observations. One observation, 90% of the churches were doing exactly the same thing. And so he came up with a list of several things that we could start at CCV that nobody was doing that would make us different. So I think the church of the future is you've got, you've got to be unique. How, how are you going to, if in Phoenix, 85, 90% of the people don't go to church. So the issue is not more churches, it's Who's going to reach these 90% that don't go? We got to do something different, uh, so to speak. And when I work with pastors, I think one of the major problems pastors have not been taught in Bible college and seminary, you attract who you are, not what you want. 
Most people say, I'm gonna attract everybody. No, you're not. And if you're in a bigger community, the more you narrow your target, the more effective you're gonna be. Most pastors really don't know who they want. For example, people would come to us and say, Don, man, you have a men's, you're reaching men. I wanna reach men. And I ask them, what kind of men? And it usually stops them in their tracks. You wanna reach businessmen, athletes, tech people, artists, because there's a totally different segment there. So I would say, if I was gonna be a pastor moving forward, I would look and take and have somebody help me. Who am I? Who do I reach? Who do I attract? And I would develop my target more specifically to go after those people. Okay, before I unpack that, I want you guys to realize that if you work for Wilson and you get a heart transplant, your idea of relaxing is you gotta go visit 50 churches, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I let him recover for a couple of days. No, a few, a few months. A few months. Uh, okay. So I, I want you to, because I, I know you and I've heard some of this stuff before, but these guys maybe haven't. I want you to unpack that a little bit of knowing your, who you are. So this target audience, who you're trying to reach, uh, it, flesh that out. You're sitting down and coaching somebody and saying, all right, let's understand who it is you're trying to reach and how would that differ from somebody down the street? Okay. Uh, I want to throw out something here too. What's interesting to me, Phil, is, you know, I think the two qualities you need if you're going to build a significant ministry is leadership and communication. Uh, we get neither in Bible college and seminary. Uh, but we, most of the conferences we can go to help us with leadership and church growth or that sort of thing. What we don't want get, I'm amazed how many pastors I meet that They've been in the ministry for 25 years and never had a speech coach. They've never had somebody come in and critique them, evaluate their communication style to help them be more effective. Uh, John Maxwell has written a lot of books on leadership, but one of the best books I think he's written on, on preaching is the, entitled, Many Can Communicate, Few Can Connect. The key to preaching is connection. So how do I connect? If I'm going to reach businessmen, I can quote from the Greek, I got a PhD, that doesn't do a lot for a businessman because he would say, you don't have a clue what I'm going through. So I better use an illustration from Wall Street Journal or Business Magazine so that when he listens to me, he says, okay, you do know what I'm going through. So who I'm trying to reach determines the books I read and also the illustrations that I'm going to use. I think most illustrations, most preachers today are storytellers. And storytellers don't necessarily reach businessmen. Businessmen want to, they want to win. They want to, hey, cut through the story. Tell me what I need to do to win. And so again, it depends on who you're going to reach. If you're going to reach the younger generation, which is more a little bit emotional, then maybe storytellers are, stories are going to work. So you have to determine who you're going to reach. And once you do that, then you don't change the message, but the stuff you add to make your message apply, uh, it's got to change. Okay, so where where I'm going with this, and this is what I'm hoping you guys like it too, is you're you're faced with a pandemic, you're faced with a huge shutdown. Everybody's trying to reopen, figure out what that looks like, and the church is suddenly realized almost a year into this thing that it's not going to be just several months of bad stuff and then we're back. If this is how do we get out of this? And you can either hunker down out of fear and says, "All right, I've got to tight fist it. I've got to hold on. How do I hold on?" Or you can grow out of it. And what I was hoping is exactly what Don's doing is Don's always looked at everything as how do you grow out of it? How, how do, what is it that I've got? And then where is it that I want to go? So the communication piece that I think is interesting you hit on, 
because now because of technology, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that when I was planting in Seattle, nobody could go on and watch Furtick and everybody, <laughs> you know, it's like now everybody, exp- you know, compares you to, to what is out there that's that they can look at online. And it's not the few that are on television, but it's, you know, everybody's that it's online. So the communication piece, not only of target audience, who am I trying to hit, but am I getting better at? I don't think I've ever heard. I don't know about you guys. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, did you get a speech coach? Did you get anybody to critique how you communicate? That's huge. Yeah. If I can jump in there, when we moved into our auditorium from the tent running 1,000 to the auditorium running 3,000, I hired a, I hired a speech coach and he came in and videoed me and we met afterwards and he said, um, "You do you realize you don't you don't look at the camera when when you when you communicate? You're still preaching like you were in the tent." I go, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, 85% of your people when they they look at the screen in a bigger church." And so when you turn sideways, you completely disconnect with them. You've got to figure out now, how are you preaching to a screen versus preaching to a live person? Okay. Uh, one of the things that I ask when, I, uh, when I'm working with churches going through transition, a lot of churches will say, well, this preacher doesn't preach the Bible like the other preacher or vice versa. And, I'd, and I'll ask elders or key leaders, okay, if you had to pick one dominant characteristic of their preaching style is it more know, feel, or do? Now, you're going to have elements of all three, but everybody is dominant in one of the others. And if you're, if, and that determines to me who you're going to reach. Are you more know, reaching church transfers that want, they don't want to do anything. They just want to come and hear somebody tell them about the Bible. Or is it more feeling oriented where they go away feeling great, but don't do anything. Or are you results oriented where you're going to give them a little feeling, a little knowledge with the end of the result. The end of the message is what, how are you going to take this Sunday sermon and apply it to life on Monday? Uh, the one reason we grew I'm more of a coach in my background, athlete. And so I know that businessmen want to win. Uh, athletes want to win. And so for me, the takeaway, the do to me is, is always a priority. So I, I think as a preacher, you've got to go back and say, am I more of a no preacher, a feel preacher or a do preacher? And that's going to determine a lot of, of who you reach. Okay. Let, let me change gears just a little bit in a practical way. Cause I, I think this is a, this is a toughie right now. And, and, and this for you guys to listen, I've known Don forever, but he and I didn't talk ahead of time of what I was going to ask him or anything. So he's just going to roll with it. Uh, every church in America right now is wrestling with when we open, what's that look like? I've got churches that put their chairs in the middle of hula hoops on the ground. So it looks like everybody's spaced out. I've got, you know, you, you name it, you, the crazy. I've got others that are militant, like what COVID? There ain't no COVID <laughs> you know, I, all over the spectrum. So if you were navigating that, uh, how would you navigate that? Because you're, especially in a large church like CCV, you got all kinds of folks. So help, help these guys that are trying to figure out how to do that and not lose half of the folks that got left. Well, you might, first of all, any, anytime you, anytime you raise the bar as a leader, uh, you're going to lose people, but you have to lose people in order to gain people. That's, that's part of a business. Uh, when you, when you, because as you grow, as your church grows, two things happen, it happens to sports teams. It happens with businesses. You have to face complacency and complexity. 
And so what COVID has done really has taken away a lot of the complexity and it's going to make us uh, get back to more of a simpler church model, I think. Okay. But the complacency, many of the churches were growing, but didn't know why they were growing. Now that COVID has hit and the, and the market share we're saying has stopped. Now they're saying, oh my gosh, we were too, we were relaxing. We were complacent. How do we get more market share in Phoenix? I think it's broken down into about three different types of churches. One are almost entirely shut down. Every week when you walk in, they make an announcement from the pulpit. Okay, everybody mask up. And so if you go to that church and you want to take your mask off, which I do to sing at least, okay. And in fact, CCV would even say, okay, for the health of everybody, keep your mask on. I'm disobedient. I might leave it on for the sermon, but not for singing because I can't sing with my mask on. But that's one, the church that says, okay, everybody mask up. The second group is those that it's, they've got uh, disinfected out. They got masks when you walk in, but it's pretty much optional. And then the third group, we have churches in Phoenix that from day one have pretty much said, we don't care if you wear mask at all, come on in. And the one church in Phoenix that I know that has doubled since COVID, believe it or not, is Mark Driscoll's church. And the reason they've doubled, from what I've heard from day one, they've said no mask. You do whatever you want. Now, are they reaching lost people? No, they're reaching church transfers that want to go to church and don't want to wear a mask. Does that make any sense? So those are the three different things that I find. So going forward, depending on if you're in a Republican state, a Democrat state, rural, urban, you're going to have to determine, are we no mask? Are we partial mask? Are we all mask? I think going forward. And once you make a stand, then you got to lead with that in confidence and go with it. You guys nod your heads if you're dealing with this. Because I, 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 it's the, Tim and I've got clients literally from Long Island, New York to California and everything in between. And so as Don pointed out, whether urban, rural, conservative, liberal, whatever, they're all over the map and den den denominationally as well. And I I've got pastors that are very fearful because they don't know, um, you know, are they being overly cautious? Or are they being too cavalier? Uh, and how's that perceived by others? Uh, you've got, I've not had anybody scream at me for not having my mask on somewhere, but you know, you've got those, those viral videos and stuff that, that happens. And so as, as we're allowed to come back, as church is allowed to, to operate again, I think that's going to be a thing that you've got to, to deal with. And it's maybe has nothing to do with the disease. It has everything to do with the, the thought and the fear. Right. And, and, so, and so, excuse me for interrupting, but one thing that you might do, Phil, I'm the kind of guy, I'll try anything method-wise without compromising the gospel. And if, and if I make a mistake, fine, I'll blow it up and try something else. So I think what I, what you might do, first of all, you can't do it unless you have the okay of your elders, whoever your leadership group is to kind of say, I, I'm, I want to try this and you're behind me. I might start uh, a different service for those totally that don't want masks. I might start another service for those that everybody is, is really masked up and try it and see which ones come. I've got a friend in Phoenix in a newer church and he was running two services and he had some people that said, we will not come until you have a mask mandatory service. So he thought, okay, uh, that might be a big crowd. He started a mask only service and he said 25 people come. 
And so he, so he asked me, he said, what should I do? I said, well, uh, I learned a long time ago, what you reach people with is what you keep people with. So if you told them you're going to do a mass service and now you take it away, you got to be prepared maybe to lose 20 of them. Maybe you won't. They can always stay home and watch it online. But but uh, he now he's wrestling with now that I started this. Now do I cancel it because it wasn't it wasn't effective? OK, a couple of different things I want to go through. One, let's talk about money because uh, it's nickels and noses. So we've been talking a lot about noses in in attractional suddenly can't use the room, can't use the room to its fullest capacity. And we're trying to also stay connected financially through that process. Uh, the the way people in North America give money to churches has been changing for years and has been diminishing in the number of people that actually participate. So one of the stats that we use is 45% of the people in the average church give less than $200 in a year. And that was, of course, pre-COVID. Now that I can engage and plug in by watching you in my pajamas, it's even going to be uh, more impacted that by by that. You've always been great at casting vision, raising dollars, fueling ministry. Uh, tell me, run that through your head. Going forward now, how do you see generosity, church, giving, connecting with givers? Well, I think one, uh, to my surprise, Phil, we've worked with 150 pastors and churches in the last two years. I would say since COVID, I'm going to say at least 80% are same finances, or believe it or not, they have more money than they've ever had. And it comes back to what percentage are giving online. Those that have a high percentage of giving online, people have continually given, even though they're not going to church, in most of the churches we're working with, okay? But what those churches are doing to keep the funds coming in, they still have initiatives that they're doing to impact the community to make people still realize, even though I'm not going to church, our church is still making a difference in the community. Uh, and so that's one thing they're doing to keep keep it in. Because what's happened is some of them got the PPE money, some are PPP, whatever it is. Somebody also, a lot of them also have less expenses because they have less ministries going on. The utilities aren't the same with all their ministries. So really a lot of them are, are in good shape. One person that I know has a very unusual church. He has Andy Stanley, pre he is online, but he has Andy Stanley preach uh, like 25 times a, a, a year online for his church. His giving is down 40%. <laughs> and I said, well, I wonder why. They might as well give it to Andy, you know, as, as give it to you. That, that's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. So I think going forward, you got to move your people to online giving. If you're not, that's huge. And secondly, uh, until you're back in church, you have to do something during COVID to convince your people that you're still trying to impact the community so they see a need to give uh, to the church. Yeah, there are two things. One is the, is the the abused word through this whole process of who's essential, the essential workers. You know, I, it, I cringe. Now, I've got to set the stage. My daughter-in-law is a nurse in a hospital and works in a COVID unit. So I do consider Lauren essential. But I also consider my son essential in making money, too. <laughs> you know, every, all of us that are taking care of our families are trying to be essential. Same thing with church now is like, are we an essential are we an essential service? I think we're viewed in, in a large part of the country as non-essential. And the old, remember the old preacher story used to tell us that if your church disappeared tomorrow, would anybody notice? Right. Well, we got to look at that. And so my theory is those sick churches that were sick pre-COVID won't survive. 
those that were not sick have a much better chance of surviving. But part of that you're talking about is being essential. Part of being essential and how you're viewed by the world, especially is what is it that you guys do? I mean, am I just giving you money so that you can have your building open or are you, what are you actually doing? So I, I, I just want, which I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Cause I think another thing that's changed is you, you look at, and I don't want to get political, but you look at a lot of quote evangelicals that have jumped behind Trump and how Trump has ended up here at the end. It's give, it's given a bad name for a lot of evangelicals. On the other hand, you got maybe Biden, who's more the liberal side, which some evangelicals are for him or not, but all it all comes together in what I've said for years. The church in America is now the visiting team. And the problem is as a pastor in Bible college and seminary, I was never trained to be a pastor of a, where the church was a visiting team. I was always trained that the church is the home team. If you're the home team, they love you. If you're the, if you're the visiting team, they boo you. So for now, then moving forward, we have to say, now we're a church that people don't like. How do we create goodwill? And I think it's going to take good deeds and goodwill before we can ever share good news. So if you're going to be a church moving forward, you can't do the same thing you've always done. You got to figure out how do you how do you do good needs so they can see your love in action, and how do you create goodwill so they're even willing to talk to, to a neighbor when they find out you're a Christ follower. Okay, so let, let me. I I would be remiss if I didn't jump on this other this other uh, tangent. Um, if we go back in history. Right after Katrina um, hit, I was working with some ministries in that area. So literally, New Orleans went from the largest city in the state to behind Baton Rouge after that, because everybody had to leave and go to Baton Rouge or to go to Houston or wherever. And, and New Orleans has never come back. You know, just population has never come back. But one of the stats, and I, I was doing some stuff for Billy Graham at the time, and one of the stats that, that shocked me is I met with pastors in New Orleans. And there was almost 100% turnover in pastors in the three years after Katrina. Think of that, that it was such a difficult place afterwards that the pastors and their families, you know, as I like to say, were suddenly called to better, warmer climates or whatever. You know, you, you got another opportunity. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have gone, but there's, there's something that's lost in this. And this is what I think is going to be the unforeseen of the COVID fallout among ministry leaders is the impact on ministry leaders, mental health, and their families. And I know that's that's a big part of what where your heart, you're in Sioux, especially when you left CCV and you're working with pastors. So talk to me about mental health, the pastor surviving something like this, his attention to his family. Where do you go with that in your head? What do you think of? Well, I read this and I'm not sure who, so this is what you do. You say, I read somewhere, you know, or maybe you stole it. I don't know. Uh, that makes it theologically okay to steal it. But I, I read somewhere that 70% of pastors are codependent. Doesn't mean they're on drugs. It means they, they're, they're, they're codependent for attention and affirmation. What I'm finding with the majority of pastors I'm working with, the, when I when you preach live and somebody comes out afterwards and tells you, Pastor, that was a great sermon. You've impacted my life. That usually gives most preachers enough affirmation and juice to keep you going week after week. 
COVID's changed that. Online preaching, you don't get affirmation like you used to. They can, might send you a, a, a text or, or you know, t- a something, oh, that was a great message. That's not the same as somebody verse by or face-to-face telling you that was a great message. So I'm finding that is a major mental problem that preachers are going through. They're not getting the affirmation, and that's causing all kinds of mental health. I'm hearing that more on pastors and wives, not so much on their kids. But I see a lot of pastors leaving ministry right now because again, they're, they haven't, they need that affirmation more than they ever realize, and they're not getting it. And that's why you're having things like what? Um, pastors having affairs like Carl Lentz and I can keep on going. Um, and so what would you, what do you say to them? Pardon me? What, what do you say to them as far as they're dealing with that? So what's, what's the, the remedy, the prescription? I'm well, I'm the wrong guy because, <laughs> because I grew up on a farm and I milked cows every day and night for 18 years. I took one vacation in 18 years. My dad never asked me, son, are you having a good day? He said, did you get done what I told you to do? So I've never been feelings based in my ministry. It's more results based. We have, we have a culture today that is more concerned about feelings. And so if we're raising up pastors that you're more feeling based and you need that affirmation all the time, um, um, you're, I'd say go to a counselor. We, we, some, some people I'm working with right now, I know a professional counselor is working with 60 pastors that are all dealing with this major issue of affirmation and depression. So, because um, again, I don't think we get over depression by thinking about ourselves. You, you got you to gotta invest in others. And that's where I've just always been when I get discouraged in ministry and my best friends leave the church or a staff person leaves, I have always been able to overcome my anxiety and depression by investing in lost people. I know that's what I need to keep me balanced. So I would say to other pastors, if you're dealing with depression and you're missing the affirmation, what is it for you that you need to, to refuel your tank. It's probably going to be different for, for different pastors. For me, okay. I've got to invest in lost people. Okay. For, first of all, this is why I wanted to do this whole thing is because this is a stuff that nobody ever really talks about. And, and I know you will be a truth teller. Uh, let me ask you this, because I, I know you. So um, do, does everybody on your staff in the past have to be wired like you to succeed or can you have different kinds of people on your staff? Because everybody didn't milk cows twice a day. Right. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, no, you got to have different people on different temperaments on your staff. It's like all your elders. If all your elders are millionaire entrepreneurs, they're going to drive you nuts. On the other hand, if you have no elders that are visionaries, you're going to drag them along all the time. Same thing with the church. However, you have to put key people in key positions that do have exactly what you have. For example, as our church got bigger, uh, I did not, um, I released most of the hiring to everybody. The only people that I had major input in hiring was the main music pastor who's up front, because uh, I don't want the tight skinny jeans. Uh, secondly, was the teaching pastor, but believe it or not, all my campus pastors, I personally interviewed and hired. And every one of our campus pastors are either 
pro or college athletes, because that's who I relate to. So when I want to get after them and say, your campus isn't getting the job done, they don't take it personal and say, pastor, you know, I've been praying. They say, I'll, I'll go beat that next guy. So I had to get those key players around me that are like me. I, I was on a plane once, hang with me. And, and the guy was reading a book and I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a sports agent. I, I work with professional athletes. He was reading a book called Captain's Class. And this author had studied successful sports teams over the years from all countries, men and women. And it wasn't just successful one year. It was, it was repeatable championships year after year after year. And, and for example, the number one team of, of, of in America has been the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell's got nine championship rings, way more than Jordan or LeBron ever had. What they found out from this, it wasn't the coach or the owner or the money that developed champion teams over and over and over. It was who was the captain that raised the bar on other all the other employees. What I'm getting at, if you as the senior pastor are the only one that's the go-getter and everybody else is um, average, you're gonna get tired of that. You've gotta have one or two or three people on your staff or a captain that's in a key position beside you that raises the bar by example so that that raises the bar for everybody else. That was kind of an interesting learning for me. So I've always had key people on my staff that still had the same values that were wired the same way I was, but I couldn't have everybody. Uh, uh, is that making sense? That's a little long. Yeah, re repeat, the, repeat the name of the book that you saw the guy reading. Captain's Class, C-L-A-S-S, -S, Captain's Class. Um, An I got another you know, another okay. book, another book I'll, I'll throw out is because um, I'm real big on today, um, men, hiring men, uh, absentee fathers, trying to get young guys that are uh, go-getters, uh, that sort of thing. Boy Crisis is a thick book. It was written by two authors. One of the guys wrote um, Winter, Men Are From Venus, or Venus, Women Are From Mars, or whatever it was. The other one was a part of the 80s movement of the women's movement. And after he was in the middle of that for 10 to 15 years, he realized the key to our culture is not having more assertive, aggressive women. It's we're raising passive boys. And so it talks about the boy crisis. The number one uh, suicide of, of males today is boys in their 20s. Second highest suicide, men over 65. Why? They've lost their purpose, okay? And in hmm. the 20s, you don't have your purpose. So anyway, uh, those books, because I'm real big on, when I hired, the number one question I asked was, tell me about your relationship with your father. And that would tell me volumes about a guy or a, uh, or a gal, how I'm going to be able to work with them, whether they've had a positive relationship or uh, an abusive or a distant. So that I, I'm, well, I'm all on the map now, but that would be on hiring staff to get those key players. No, my, that's, that's, my that's, dad my hero. that's good stuff. I'll put a little commercial in this for you guys. Uh, the next, our second episode for next month, I'm bringing in somebody and I won't spoil it and tell you what it's exactly about, but it's going to deal with the mental health of teenagers, adolescents, how that's taken a hit in this, during this COVID thing, suicide rate is through the roof with that group. And as a church, how's that's going to affect how you do youth ministry? Um, it's, it's, I think it'll be a fascinating conversation and they've actually got a, what they actually are doing is working. So that dovetails that way. Let's, let's be positive now. Uh, 
Go ahead. You want to say something? Let me throw out one more book that's profound for all you guys. It's called Diminishing Decade. What it reveals historically throughout the generations, they've been looking at different decades and, and it didn't come from an American idea. They have found out that the most important decade of your development, mentally, psychologically, everything is the 20s. And what they determined is every generation in the past, the 20 year olds got married, had a family, bought a house, got a job. This is the first time in history when the 20 year olds are still living at home. They're not married. They're not having kids. They don't own a house. And what they're saying is it is warped their developmental uh, mentally. And if they do not change that, they will be 40 and 50 years old and still will be having the developmental uh, qualities of this 24 year old of the twenties of those in their twenties. It's a profound study. Read that book. It'll really, uh, if you've got twenties on your staff, you, it'll really open up some eyes of how, how to work with them or the problems you're going to find. What was the name of that book? I think it's called the diminishing decade. Diminishing decade. Yes. And before, and before it's canceled, if you ever watch live PD, that's who always got arrested. <laughs> it, it was the 40 year old living at home and uh, anyway. Still tw- uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, okay. So let's, let's go positive. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is if there's a young Don Wilson and he's looking at, and CCV is taken off like a rocket ship, but you went through COVID and you're looking forward. Don't look at the problems. Tell me about what you see as opportunities, how this may change how the world sees church or whatever but what opportunities might be there for us? Uh, well, the best thing I ever did to grow our church, and it cost me very little, is I would do prayer walking. That's called playing golf the way I hit it. I'd go out and play golf with unchurched men that I was trying to reach. Uh, and I would say to them, I want you to come to my church next week. I don't want you to stay, which was a lie. I really wanted to get them. But I would say, come, and I want you to mystery shop me. And tell me what you, what I related. Was, were we friendly? Was the food okay? Was the sermon, the music, everything? And I'll buy your lunch the week after that. And you tell me what I did good, what I needed to improve on. And it didn't. All it cost me was a lunch. And I would say that was the best thing I ever did because I knew who was trying to reach. And so I went to the unchurched people that I was trying to reach to determine what did they need. And when they would come in and evaluate and critique me every week with different people, then I consistently knew, okay, these are the needs of the people I'm trying to reach. I didn't use focus groups that much because a focus group will not give you the right information. What you get from a focus group determines as who's in the focus group. And so I don't know if that helps you or not, Phil, but so if I was a preacher, a young preacher, I would go out and find some unchurched people that are go-getters in the business world, wherever, and I would have them come to the church or if they don't come to church, I would pick their brain What's it going to take for you to go to church? Or if you've left, what's it going to take for you to come back to church? And I'd start building my ministry off of what those people wanted, not of of what church transfers want. Okay, on that last book, uh, Handy Dandy, Dave Miller found it. And it was written by Meg J, M-E-G-J-A-Y. So if you're looking for that one, The Diminishing Decade. Give me, give me a uh, elevator ride on accelerator group with these guys. Introduce them to what it is you're doing. Since first of all, if you guys know Wilson, he retired from CCB, but Don will never retire. Uh, his he's he still thinks he's milking cows twice a day. <laughs> he's he is the hardest working guy around. So you got accelerate group. What is that? 
Yeah, you're right. If I'd had COVID the first year I retired, I'd, I'd have lost my marriage of 50, 50 years. <laughs> uh, but because uh, here's a key on retirement. If anybody's listening who's older, I learned it wasn't what you retire from, it's what you retire to. So I knew I had to do something. So my wife's been my partner for 50 years, been helping me be, I couldn't be successful without her. So I determined when I stepped aside from the church, while it was growing and great momentum and said to stay in too long, that honey, what do we want to do together? And her experience is as we've gone to conferences year after year after year, she'd come home and say, honey, you guys don't have a clue what we women think because you tell us to go get a spa or whatever. And you don't know what we're going through. Boy, was she right. And so we bring couples together. We pay, bring them into a hotel, resort. We pay for their everything, the food, lodging. All they have to pay is to get there. And we bring in 12 couples from all the United States. I have hosts. They determine the agenda. I don't. We sit down. I say, what do you want to talk about? And basically, we have found the most lonely people in America are the pastor's wife. And so we pour 80% of the time we're together in all sessions, 20% of the time we break up. Most pastors' wives feel really alone. So what we're trying to do is help their marriage, because if I can help their marriage, I can help their ministry. And so uh, if, if, you, if we can help you with a retreat, go on our website, accelerate, A-C-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-E dot group and do that. So that's what we're doing. We're just pouring into pastors and wives trying to help them in the ministry. We're very vulnerable and honest about what we went through. Uh, I have three kids. They're all in the ministry. I got 11 grandkids, uh, two studying for the mission field. Three out of my four grandsons are preparing for the ministry. So um, we're very open and upfront with this. So um, if you're struggling, if you need encouragement, uh, if your wife needs encouragement, um, check it out. Love to have you. It's free. It's pay to get there. Okay. Your website, accelerate.group.what? That's it, accelerate.group. Is that, how can you, dot .group is a, a thing? Is that a thing? Ling. Okay, Jason Health said it's, it's a thing. Okay, I believe Ling, Jason. Ling, you, you've, been, you've been too narrow. You, you need to stretch yourself as you get older, man. You're, you're plateauing. <laughs> Come on, you need, you, need to, you need to keep growing. I, I noticed that all these books you throw out, you don't say anything I write. I don't know that you've written anything <laughs> because See? It, it, let me tell you, there's some guys that are in book smart and there's some guys that are intuitively smart. I've got a couple granddaughters. One's made all A's her whole life and she gets scholarships and her, her sister says you're book smart, but I'm, I'm street smart. Ling is one of the smartest street smart guys I've ever met. I mean, he, He's smooth. And when I was around him, he comes up with things I'd never heard before. And he's not asking for that commercial. I'm just telling you, that's, that's why I think we kind of connected. I like guys that think out of the box. Phil's constantly thinking out of the box. Don and Sue are very, very good to me. I'll, I'll just say this about him when I was an early guy starting out, because I was in my 20s. So you had a big impact on me when you're talking about that, that. And I was planting my first church and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And somebody told me about CCV, your pastor's conference. Heard Tommy Barnett. Remember when you brought Tommy in uh, to the and you guys were in the little strip shopping center kind of thing. Uh, huge, huge impact. But you and Sue are very gracious and build a, a friendship. And, and I have called on you many, many times. Preaching at CCV was one of the highlights. Um, but got to tell you, man, it was like a it was like a track, a track meet. Preaching at the tent the first time, six services. And it's like you just keep going. You got. You guys had it down to a science. Uh, somebody corrected me. It's the captain class 
by Sam Walker, I believe on that book, if you guys were looking for it, The Captain Class by Sam Walker. Accelerate.group is Wilson's. If he can be of any benefit to you, make sure you reach out to him. Thank you, Don Wilson. Never fails to deliver. Uh, He's been a friend for a long time and a mentor. And I hope that you will tune in for our next episode of The Giving Leader with Phil Ling. And if you like it, shameless plug, share it with somebody. The Giving Leader with Phil Ling.